Today, the case I'm covering is about a young police chief who was killed in the line of duty. The small town murder placed a suspect on the FBI's most wanted list, and the case went unsolved for over 30 years. I'm your host, Coy, and this is the story of Gregory Adams. As I said a few episodes ago, I'm redoing some of my first episodes, and this is one of those. And don't worry, it's the same story. It won't be told exactly the same. I've done a little bit more research and rewritten how I explained a few things. So without further delay, here's the story. Gregory Adams served with the Marines. Then he worked for Washington, D.C. police for about two years. He and his wife, Mary, had two sons, Ben and Greg Jr. When one of his partners died in D.C., Gregory and Mary decided that they wanted to get away, have a different pace of life. So when a job opened up for a police officer in Saxonburg, Pennsylvania, Gregory applied and got the job. And it wasn't long after, and Gregory was appointed as the police chief. Now, Saxonburg is a small, close-knit town. In 1980, the population was about 1,300 people. In 2022, it's only a few hundred more than that. On December 4th, 1980, Gregory Adams was 31 years old. He was working his last shift before going on a week-long vacation with Mary and their sons. Greg Jr. was only about 8 months old at the time, and Ben was 3 years old. While Gregory was driving around in his patrol car, he witnessed a white Mercury Cougar run a stop sign. Gregory tried to catch up to the vehicle, but it was traveling at a high rate of speed. Gregory lost sight of the vehicle, but continued driving down the road. Gregory then spotted the vehicle in the Agway feed store parking lot. The vehicle went into the parking lot and was trying to make a U-turn to come back out. Gregory used his patrol car to cut the vehicle off and conduct a traffic stop. Now, from the beginning, Gregory was at a disadvantage. Most of the time when cops do traffic stops, they are behind the vehicle. Because the car was turning around, it put Gregory in front of the vehicle, which was already an awkward and unsafe position to be in. Gregory approached the car on the driver's side. The driver seemed to comply. He handed Gregory an ID card. Then as Gregory was looking at the ID card, the driver fired two shots into Gregory's chest with a handgun. The driver jumped out of the car and began fighting with Gregory. Gregory was able to draw his gun out of the holster, but the driver also had his hands on it, and they began fighting over Gregory's gun. While fighting over the gun, Gregory fired all the rounds out. After being shot in the chest, Gregory put up a hard fight. The blood trail and scuff marks in the gravel parking lot led to a neighbor's yard. At the time, the driver was able to get Gregory's gun and began beating him in the face with it. 16-year-old Tyler Freeling lived with his mother, Midge, right next door to the Agway feed store. Tiger heard the gunshots and looked out of his bedroom window, but he couldn't see anyone. 
so he ran to tell his mom about the gunshots. At first, Midge kind of brushed it off. It was a small town and it was hunting season. Gunshots were normal. But Midge went outside anyways, and she saw Gregory lying in their grass. She ran over to him, and his face was so badly beaten that she could not recognize him. Now keep in mind, this is the police chief of a small town in the 80s. She knew exactly who he was. She just couldn't recognize him. And it wasn't until she saw the stripes on his pants that distinguished him as a police chief that she realized it was Gregory. Midge did see a white car leaving the scene as she was tending to Gregory. She just wasn't able to see the driver. An ambulance arrived and tried to rush Gregory to the hospital. Officer Gordon Mainhart rode in the ambulance with Gregory. Along the way, they did everything they could to save him, but Gregory passed away on the ride. This was only the second murder in the 150 years of Saxonburg, and it didn't take long for state investigators to arrive on scene and begin their investigation of the murder of a small town police chief. They found the gun that was used to shoot Gregory was still on scene, but the serial number was scratched off. There was one key piece of evidence that was left on scene. The driver's license that Gregory got from the driver just before he was shot it was still on the ground. The name on it was Stanley John Portis. Investigators immediately began tracking down Stanley John Portis, and it didn't take them long to find him. Because, you see, he was in a cemetery, and he had been there for the last 32 years. But they learned that Stanley was survived by his wife Lillian, and she was now remarried to a man named Donald Eugene Webb. When Webb's name popped up in the investigation, everything started coming together. Webb was already on the FBI's radar. He was a career criminal, had a history of burglaries, armed bank robberies, jewelry thefts, and vehicle thefts. Webb was part of the Fall River Gang, and that gang was linked to the Patriarcha crime family. And just to take a small little detour to talk about the Patriarcha crime family, they're an Italian-American mafia crime family. They are still around and active today, but back in 1980, they were ran by Raymond Patriarca. And I'm probably completely butchering this last name. They were known for their burglaries of jewelry stores and high-end hotels up and down the East Coast. Not sure how credible this information is, but I still found it interesting, and it was at least a rumor that was deemed credible. But one member of the family, Vincent Teresa, testified that Raymond was involved in a hit that was supposed to kill Fidel Castro, the Prime Minister of Cuba in 1960. That hit was never carried out. In 1983, Raymond was finally arrested on other murder charges. Then he died from natural causes in 1984. Donald Eugene Webb, he was born in Oklahoma City, 1931. He was born as Donald Eugene Perkins, he enlisted in the Navy, but received a dishonorable discharge. In 1956, he legally changed his name from Perkins to Webb after spending some time in prison. Now, that just gives you a brief overview of the crime family that Webb was involved in. In fact, Webb was identified as a person who was casing a jewelry store in Saxonburg the day before Gregory stopped him. It was believed that Webb was in the store casing it out with an associate, and their plan was to return a day or two later to rob it. Back at the scene of the feed store parking lot, 
Investigators did find O-type blood at the scene. Two weeks later, an abandoned white Mercury Cougar was located at a Johnson & Howard motel in Warwick, Rhode Island. The vehicle was rented to none other than Stanley John Portis. When they located the vehicle, they found a large amount of blood in the driver's side of the car. I'm sure you can guess it. The blood type was O. DNA profiling was still a few years away, but they were able to at least identify the blood type. Almost immediately after finding the car, a federal arrest warrant was issued for Webb and a nationwide manhunt began. Six months later, on May 4, 1981, Webb was placed on the FBI's most wanted list, and this is essentially where the case went cold. Over the years, the FBI received tips on reported sightings of Webb. They ranged from Canada, Costa Rica, Seattle to the New England area. Each of these tips were followed up on. Some of them looked so identical to Webb that the FBI took their fingerprints to compare them, just to verify if it was or wasn't him. My goal is to make this a pretty fast ad. A couple years ago, I wrote a book called One Moment. It's about a guy named Micah. He never planned to return to his hometown in Florida, but things don't always go as planned. While he's back home, he's dealing with the mental, physical, and emotional impact of being in a war. He then meets Sarah, and she is escaping an abusive marriage. The two have an undeniable bond, and a relationship begins. When the abusive ex finds out about this new relationship, he gets involved in their lives. While this puts a strain on the relationship, it's only the beginning, because dark secrets start to come out. And the truth is, maybe you never really know anyone. There are a few ways that you can get this book if you're interested. The Amazon link is in the show notes if you just want the book. Or you can join my Patreon community for $5 a month. You'll get two extra true crime episodes, a copy of One Moment, and a few other perks. That link is also in the show notes or on my social media pages. Anyways, hopefully this ad was fast enough, and thank you for listening. Back to the episode. In January of 1990, the FBI received a letter from a person claiming to be Webb. In the letter... Webb said that he wanted forgiveness and that he may turn himself in, but only if he could talk to the host of America's Most Wanted TV show, John Walsh. On April 1st, 1990, John Walsh spent the day at the television studio with FBI agents, waiting for a phone call from Webb. It wasn't until 8.20 p.m. that the phone operator got Walsh's attention, saying that they had Webb on the phone. To attempt to vet this person on the phone, Walsh asked questions that Webb would have known, such as, what was his wife's name? The person on the phone refused to answer the questions and eventually hung up. And I'm sure there's no coincidence that this phone call came on April Fool's Day. In the 1990s, the FBI set up surveillance on Lillian's house. They noticed that she always parked in the garage and that when she did part, she never exited the car until the garage door was completely closed. As strange as this seemed, they never saw any signs of Webb. In the early 2000s, the name Donald Eugene Webb popped up on the radar again. 
this time in Detroit, Michigan. The FBI sent Detroit Police Department to investigate this, but the address that was used with the name led to a burned down house. Investigators ultimately concluded that this was just a case of identity theft, which was probably the worst researched case of identity theft ever, stealing the ID of someone who was on the FBI's most wanted list. On March 31, 2007, Webb was removed from the FBI's most wanted list. At the time he was removed, he was on the top 10 list longer than anyone had ever been. In 2015, the FBI increased the reward to $100,000 for any information leading to Webb's location. The FBI agents believed that Webb could still be alive. He would have been 84 years old. Over the years, a theory that stuck around was that the Mafia decided to clean up the mess and that they killed Webb and disposed of the body. In 2015, the FBI increased the reward to $100,000 for any information leading to Webb's location. FBI agents believed that Webb could have still been alive. He would have been 84 years old at the time. Over the years, a theory that stuck around was that the Mafia decided to clean up the mess and that they killed Webb themselves and disposed of the body. In 2017, the FBI searched Lillian Webb's North Dartmouth house in Massachusetts. Although the documents haven't been released, it's believed that investigators used an illegal gambling investigation into Stanley Webb, which is Donald and Lillian's son, to get into the house. Investigators behind the warrant worked for the Massachusetts Attorney General's Gaming Enforcement Division. While they were searching the house, they discovered a secret room that was in the back of a closet. And inside this secret room, there was a walking cane. Now, with the discovery of the secret room and the walking cane, they went to Lillian and they laid all the cards on the table for her. If she didn't come clean with the truth, she would be charged with harboring Webb. In June of 2017, Lillian and her attorney, Jack Cecilene, which was the longtime attorney for the patriarch of family, they began working on a deal with the FBI. With full immunity, Lillian led the FBI to Webb's remains, which was buried in the backyard. The next month, the medical examiner confirmed that the remains were, in fact, Webb's. Lillian then began giving the FBI the full story. After the shooting with Chief Gregory Adams in 1980, Webb was wounded in the leg, which was from Gregory shooting him when they were fighting over Gregory's gun. When he got away, Webb checked into a hospital under a fake name, where he was for about a month. He then spent the rest of his life hiding between two different houses before he died in 1999 from several strokes. Lillian also said that while Webb was in hiding, she would take him out from time to time. He would lie down in the backseat of the car, and she would wear wigs to avoid any detection in public. While Lillian is not facing any criminal charges, Gregory Adams' family has filed a civil suit against Webb's family. The outcome of that civil suit has not been disclosed. This case went over 30 years before it was solved. For over 30 years, every day passed. Mary hoped that she would get a call saying that Webb was either captured or found. While Webb wasn't found alive, Gregory's family finally has a little bit of closure. Knowing that Webb has been found and that he wasn't out living a normal life. 
and a big cause of him not being able to live a normal life was the fight that Gregory was able to put up. And a little bit more to add to this story. I mentioned earlier Officer Gordon Mainhart. He was the one who rode in the ambulance with Gregory. Well, whenever Webb's body was discovered, Gordon was the police chief in Saxonburg at the time. Gordon drove a Saxonburg police car to Webb's home so that there would be some sort of representation of Gregory whenever Webb was found. I kind of got chills just saying that. That is going to bring us to a conclusion of this episode. If you're able to, please leave a review or a rating. And thank you for listening, and I hope you have a great day.